All right, all right. Let's just see how this goes. It might be a short in my mic box. This yes. is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, when we are not preempted by Northwestern University football. You can also hear This Is Hell in an abbreviated one-hour version weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com, thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at beware-the-radio.com. And we are now airing on CKUW-FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station at the University of Winnipeg. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station, community radio station, email us at chuck at thisishell.com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to This Is Hell and why you'd love to hear it carried in your community. Deadly floods devastated parts of eastern Kentucky back in late July and early August. As so often is the case with what are so-called natural disasters, those whose lives are the most precarious, living in places that are the most exploited, were disproportionately its victims. But these human beings are not merely victims of a natural disaster, but an unnatural, human-caused as well as climate-change-fueled disaster. Extreme weather caused by emissions from industries like the one that had left eastern Kentucky and its residents so vulnerable to flooding. Returning to This Is Hell to tell us what the flooding was like from his perspective where he lives in Whitesburg, Kentucky, which was hard hit by the flooding, writer and co-host of the podcast Trill Billy Workers Party, Terrence Ray returns to This Is Hell to speak with us live from his hometown of Whitesburg, Kentucky about his Baffler magazine article, Flooding in the Sacrifice Zone Among the Wreckage in Eastern Kentucky. Terrence was on This Is Hell most recently in July of 2021 to discuss another Baffler article, United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's War on Opioids. That interview was selected by listeners as one of their favorites of 2021, and we replayed it over the year-end holiday season last year. Terrence was also on the show back in 2019 when we discussed yet another of his Baffler pieces, Get Real, What Liberals Like Paul Krugman Still Don't Understand About Rural America. You can follow Terrence on Twitter, at the Trillbillies. You can find Trillbillies, Trillbilly Workers Party at Patreon, at patreon.com slash trillbillyworkersparty. Terrence was suggested as a returning, or uh, by a returning guest, by a long time, or sorry, let me do that again. Terrence was suggested as a returning guest by longtime listener and recent guest himself, Calvin Graham. Calvin was recently on our show back in July with Douglas Pond Cummings, 
when they discussed their writing that appeared in the Tulsa Law Review, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacre, Tulsa's Black Wall Street, and Elaine's Sharecroppers. You may remember the story of Calvin personally dropping off a copy of the Tulsa Law Review at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Uh, And he did so while uh, visiting Chicago while I was still in the hospital recovering from what turned out to be a life-saving surgery. So Calvin uh, sent an email earlier this month saying, Hey guys, hope all is well with y'all. Wanted to throw an article from a past guest your way, and I think he would make a very good, uh, particularly hellish interview on the recent flooding in Kentucky. So thanks to Calvin for suggesting, suggesting Terrence Ray return to This Is Hell, and thanks, Calvin, for appearing on This Is Hell with Dre last month. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, it's been a while. How have you been? I've been well. How are you, sir? Uh, f- uh, crazy things have happened in my life just recently. But what's new with you oh, first? Well, while you were on uh, vacation, I was doing a two-week stint of, uh, <laughs> quote, vacation. I went home to help my niece move into a, a, her new house, which is a very old house and required two uh, over two weeks of work to uh, no kidding just to move in <laughs> i mean you know it's all like long-term stuff you know right like fixing the infrastructure and stuff oh and, of the home itself yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. not in good shape yeah 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 well you know it was it was pretty good move in but like these are like long-term fixes that we wanted to do right to uh you know and once you we, you know we, we, once you move in you can't go back and do it then. well not easily right anyway. and then you know we of course we went in with a list of uh things to do and every single thing on the list needed six more things to accomplish <laughs> before you could do the thing on the list and get this like the whole second floor I mean, <coughs> this is like a hundred year old house right i mean it's just a typical working i would just chuck push it in and out a whole bunch of times there it goes okay. go ahead <laughs> the um so it's like a hundred-year-old house, and we we discovered the uh, the whole second floor was like on old knob and tube wiring. Oh man! Like two bedrooms, a bathroom, a hallway were all on one single circuit. Oh man! Wow! <laughs> it was awesome. I've seen that before, where people have taken extension cords and painted over them along the wainscoting <laughs> along the floorboards, <laughs> and to then solve that. just yeah. to, exactly. So you have luckily, all of a sudden right. It's very dangerous. L- luckily, the attic was really accessible, so we were easily so it was easy to run new circuits to the. Uh, to the bedrooms and stuff. Well, it's pretty impressive that you know how to do that. Do you know how to fix a microphone box over here? I'm going to find out this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So since the most uh, recent episode of This Is Hell, there's been some breaking news in my neighborhood where I live and where these studios are located. One evening, my girlie and I were watching the local news when some very local news broke. As we were watching the news, we suddenly heard six gunshots ring out very nearby. While sometimes it's hard to tell, this time maybe because of their close proximity to us, there was no doubt that this time it was gunfire, not a backfiring car or fireworks. It was definitely gunfire. Other neighbors have said... They heard five, not six shots, and news reports said four. What we would later find out is two women were sitting in a car by the alley just south of our corner, and someone or possibly more than one person came up on them, 
shooting them both, one in the neck, the other in the face, and they were both taken to the hospital in critical condition. We don't have any updates as of right now as to what their condition is. There are no suspects currently in custody. According to neighbors, this is not the first incident in our neighborhood, in our community, of women being shot in the head while sitting in parked cars where no suspects in the shootings were ever caught. This is not to continue that uh, current media theme of Chicago being a uniquely violent city or that, as many on the right claim, the people of Chicago do not care about the violence or its victims. Uh, Being raised across 8 Mile Road from Detroit and growing up watching local news that included a nightly graphic of a tombstone with a number of homicide victims that year, I have experienced uh, with the media making cities so frightening that they lead uh, residents to flee them and leave them for dead, spreading wild exaggerations everywhere they went about those left behind or who could not afford to quote-unquote escape. But be assured, it is much safer to live in cities than in rural areas. Bloomberg ran a story in June with the headline, New York City is a lot safer than small-town America. Rising homicide rates don't tell the whole story. When you dig deeper into data on deaths, you'll find uh, the more urban your surroundings, the less danger you face. The story concludes the overall lesson seems to be that the more urban your surroundings, the less danger you face. High homicide rates in some cities mean that the central counties and large metropolitan areas are on the whole slightly more dangerous than the suburban counties, but that's the only exception. The risk of death from truly external causes is three times higher in rural and small-town America than in the country's largest cities. Those external causes include accidental poisoning, this is how drug overdoses are classified, uh, intentional self-harm, falls, complications of medical and surgical care, and a sequel of Uh, of external causes of morbidity and mortality, after effects, that is, which are also fatal mostly for the elderly. And when it comes to the likelihood of being a victim of violence in St. Louis, Missouri, the city with the highest murder rate in the United States, the likelihood of you becoming a victim of violence is 1 in 50 or 2%. Meanwhile, in small-town America, like Sauk Village in South Suburban, Uh, Cook County, south of Chicago, there's a 55% chance of you becoming a victim of violence. 55 out of 100, not just 2 out of 100. In a town of 10,000 people. So if you are from Chicago and traveling throughout small-town America, as producer Sebastian Vupper is this week, and someone asks you about the nonstop killing the national news reports is taking place in Chicago or places like Chicago, remember, statistically, The city is safer than the country, and there are small towns in the United States where you are more than 10 times more likely to become a victim of violence than you are in the U.S. city with the highest murder rate. And we have an update. So yesterday evening, my uncommon law wife and I went for a walk in the park, and as we returned home, I thought it would be a good idea to see if any packages had arrived, as uh, we've had some stolen lately. After seeing there were no such deliveries, we went down the gangway to go up the back stairs of our home, and the moment we got into the gangway, the barely wide enough space between two buildings for humans to pass through, we were startled by what we counted as nine pops that seemed to be coming from a truck heading speeding west down our our block. Neither one of us thought they were gunshots, but by the time we climbed the three flights of stairs up to our apartment, Police cars were on the street and neighbors were posting on social media asking whether anyone had heard what they were calling gunshots. I'm pretty sure they were not, but 
the block does seem to be on edge from any loud noise at this point. But the way the media reports violence in cities like Chicago aside, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? Oh, this week's question from hell is what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? Well, I really would like to know what the context is of this question. Sebastian (laughs) always gives us the question from hell, and I never know what the context is. He and I are indefinitely, our radar is set to two different, completely different news cycles. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show. When we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, Richard will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our conversation with Terrence on the recent flooding in eastern Kentucky. Again, the question from hell is, what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? What dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell will receive your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, our coffee mug, the winter hat, the trucker's cap, and the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews heard here on This Is Hell during this century. You can see all of our merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. And you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Richard has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is a reminder that no hangover cure really exists. It doesn't exist. It's total myth. As posted back in January at WebMD, healthcare reporter Cara Murez of Health Day News wrote, Don't count on ginseng, probiotics, or any other so-called hangover cures. No evidence suggests hangover cures work. According to British scientists who studied nearly two dozen trials of these cure products, their review was published in December of 31st, 2021, in the journal Addiction. Reporter Murez then quotes a news release by Addiction where they cite lead author of the study, Dr. Emirate Roberts, a clinical research fellow at King's College London, saying, Our study has found that evidence on these hangover remedies is a very low quality <laughs> and there is a need to provide more rigorous assessment. Oh, well then please do so, Dr. Thomas. For now, yeah. the surest way of preventing hangover symptoms is to abstain from alcohol. Oh, shut up. Or drink in moderation. Ah, shut up. That makes this week's hangover cure and we are pretty certain we've shared this hangover cure before. There really is no cure for a hangover. Uh, coming up, we are going to have a couple of emails we want to share with you, including a crazy story about what happened at our first official This Is Hell office hours since before the pandemic began. Our weekly Wednesday meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, that happens again at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon Avenue, here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, the bar downstairs and where I'm sitting right now. We'll also be talking about the summer's floods in eastern Kentucky and what made them so destructive and deadly. We'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit 
access to the circles of the rich and powerful. We'll tell you who else will be on the show this week and what we'll be talking about. And I will share with you, uh, well, a couple of emails that we got from our listeners. This is not the media. This is hell. A bit over a month ago, the rains came to eastern Kentucky and they pounded the region for days from late July and into early August. They seemed relentless and the flooding that followed swept away homes and lives, leaving many residents to ask why this time the flooding was so destructive. Here to help us have a better understanding of the flooding and if it is a harbinger for what is to come when poverty and exploitation meets climate change returning to this is hell writer and co-host of the podcast trillbilly workers party terrence ray is on to talk about his most recent baffler magazine article flooding in the sacrifice zone among the wreckage in eastern kentucky welcome back to this is hell terrence Thanks for having me, Chuck. Great to have you back on the show. When you were on last time in July of 2021 to discuss another Baffler article, you had United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's uh, War on Opioids. That interview was selected by listeners as one of their favorites of 2021, and we replayed it over the year-end holiday season. And people can find our interviews with you by searching on your name at thisishell.com. You can follow Terrence on Twitter at the Trillbillies, and you can also find Trillbilly Workers Party on Patreon at patreon.com slash trillbillyworkersparty. So back when you posted this story on August 9th, you wrote, Last week I gave a ride to a guy named Chris who'd been helping out with flood relief in the town of Neon, Kentucky. Chris lived about two miles down the road from Neon next to an abandoned carburetor shop that was now wrecked by floodwaters. His house had miraculously escaped destruction, but the trailer homes at the bottom of the hill were all gone. Before the floods last month and earlier this month, how would you describe the area when it comes to the local economy? How had the area been affected by the economy either recently or even over the past 40 years before the rains and flooding came? What was the state of even the infrastructure of the area before the rains came? Well, that's kind of the irony of the whole thing that you hear a lot of people talking about rebuilding. Um, We were actually already in a rebuilding process. We had been in one for many years. And what we were rebuilding from was the organized abandonment of the coal industry. Uh, It left large parts of this uh, region um, impoverished uh, without any good infrastructure in terms of both civic infrastructure, uh, but also uh, good housing. And so we are in one of the poorest watersheds in the United States, um, the the Kentucky River watershed. And this flood, the flooding mostly occurred within that Kentucky River, the upper Kentucky River watershed, the North and Middle Forks. And so, uh, yeah, I think that our unemployment rate in Fletcher County, where I'm at, usually is in the double digits, um, you know, poverty rate around 25%. Uh, yeah, it's an extremely impoverished area. And the the again, the main reason for that is because of decades and decades of, of coal mining, not just in its traditional underground form, but, at, you know, it started to mechanize in the 60s and 70s and underwent a sort of 
environmental endgame in the 90s and 2000s under something called mountaintop removal. And that created a situation where the watershed here was deprived of a lot of its land cover. And so the water just didn't have anywhere to go. It was, uh, I, I mean, I read somewhere that said that something like 70% of the rain that came down in that storm went into the creeks. And that's not usually the way it's supposed to go. A lot of that water in a normal situation would be absorbed by the hills and by the vegetation and soil. But in this case, it just all went into the creeks and into people's homes, into the floodplains, where there's a lot of cheap housing, trailer houses and things like that. So you mentioned mountaintop removal. Is this what activists who oppose mountaintop removal? I remember we were talking to people who were against mountaintop removal as early as like 1998 and 1999. Did activists who were opposed to mountaintop removal, is this what they predicted would happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've got some of these mountaintop removal mines are massive. Um, I mean, there are some in West Virginia that you can fit entire cities on top, like cities like Washington, D.C. Um, these We're talking about massive amounts of land that has been uh, uh, extracted, taken up from the mountain itself. And then to make matters worse, if that wasn't already bad enough, they put that land into the creeks. They're called valley fills. And it's kind of morbid. Uh, and if you, you know, if you were talking to activists about this in the 90s, this is probably what they were telling you. Um, you get permits to do this from the government. And so, um, again, it's kind of surreal, but you apply for a permit and they say, okay, it's okay to dump X amount of tonnage of land. They call it overburden into the, uh, the stream. And that, again, that makes it even harder for the watershed to drain properly. And so what's going to happen is you're going to get a situation where uh, people's homes are in the direct line of fire. So our environmentalists, our activists, are those who uh, the, the people who were opposed to mountaintop removal, are they taking this opportunity to, you know, give a very loud sense of I told you so? Is there a discussion at all? Because when the, the eastern Kentucky uh, flooding was taking place, uh, I was out of town. I wasn't near, uh, you know, watching regular TV or anything like that at the time. But in the articles that I read, I didn't see much discussion of how mountaintop removal had uh, played a role in this flooding and the disaster and the deadly de de devastation, destruction that was happening in eastern Kentucky. So is there a sense right now of those who were right saying, I told you so? Well, you know, it's it's complicated because that whole issue was wrapped up in a whole lot of other issues. Um, the The whole idea that it, it is... Uh, a threat to your job and livelihood and life and that you're a bad neighbor if you do question those practices. I mean, that was, this is something that tore communities apart. Um, very much like uh, the opioid crisis, like we discussed last time I was on here. This was the kind of social environment of the late 90s, or, you know, 2000s, early 2010s. And, um, and this was this was a very fraught issue, is a very uh, difficult conversation to have. Uh, because you had people that were uh, essentially given terrible choices. Uh, you know, one of those choices being you can either stay and destroy, uh, you know, your community ecologically, or you can leave. And that's a terrible decision to have to make. And so um, it's always been a very difficult topic to talk about. And so it's, it's, 
it's hard to say if there's any, um, you know, laps being taken or anything, but I mean, I will say that you're right in the, in the media, there's been hardly any discussion of that. Uh, I mean, in, there's been a lot of stories and especially in the New York times and everything about the community of neon that was hit very badly here in Letcher County. But if you just drive a few miles up, th up the river from neon, you'll come to a community called Hemp Hill. And above that community is a massive strip mine that you can see from the road, which is, you know, they generally try to make sure that over the course of strip mining and mountaintop removal, they tried very hard to make it to where you couldn't see that from the road. Um, but at a certain point, it was inevitable because they were removing so much land mass. And so you can see that you can see that mine pretty well. And as a result, I mean, you know, neon uh, just got slammed. There was nowhere for that water to go. And, yep. and, and, and again, there's been no discussion of any of that, really. Yeah, and that's one of the things I found really surprising. Well, I shouldn't say really surprising because there's so much denialism in this story. Uh, Kentucky's uh, Democratic Governor Andy Bashir. I saw a headline from a story uh, where, uh, from last Wednesday, I believe it was, where he's asking the public, you know, or telling the public, we're going to find out what the causes were of this disastrous flooding. How much denialism is there right now when it comes to the role that mining has played in the disaster of the eastern Kentucky flooding? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think his his exact quote was something along the lines of, we don't know why this is happening. We don't know why this keeps happening to us. And I mean, Andy Bashir is the son of Steve Bashir, or another former Kentucky governor who presided over, um, uh, you know, a, a long period of surface mining. And uh, it, it's, it doesn't take, you know, rocket science. It's not rocket science. It doesn't take an advanced degree to see what caused this. And so, I mean, it's obviously a very uh, sort of elaborate kind of theater of trying to pretend that like um, maybe this is a normal thing that like, oh, uh, it's a natural disaster, you know, again, emphasis on that qualifier natural. But um, but I, I think that, uh, yes, uh, th places do flood. We have had floods for many years, but there is a aspect, a large aspect of this that was socially created. And uh, and that is being uh, ignored. You also write that in the wake of Eastern Kentucky's catastrophic flood of 2022, potentially the deadliest on record, once all is said and done, there's been no shortage of questions, theories, and even haphazard answers. Here's one example offered to me by a stoic or perhaps a Buddhist power company worker in line at the gas station. I've been searching for all kinds of answers as to why this happened, and finally I realized that maybe... We aren't meant to know, the guy tells you. Another was offered by Kentucky's credulous Democratic governor, Andy Bashir. I wish I could tell you why we keep getting hit here in Kentucky. I wish I could tell you why areas where people may uh, not have that much continue to get hit and lose everything. I cannot give you the why. And yet another uh, from the thousands of uh, impacted residents and activists around the world watching in real time as the entertainment trans uh, environment transforms into a permanent state of emergency, they were all saying, it's the climate, stupid. So a stoic or perhaps Buddhist prayer, power company worker uh, tells you maybe we're not meant to know what caused the floods. And you cite the governor saying he does not know why the flooding happens. And while the world seemed to be say, saying it's climate change, but when it comes to having the biggest impact on the people who don't have that much, 
It's also poverty and environmental classism and environmental racism. How much climate change denialism and how much class denialism is there in Kentucky, but especially the area that got the worst hit by the flooding? What happens when that climate change denialism you know, collides with class denialism? Well, yeah, I mean, two of our senators are Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell. I mean, two people who are probably more responsible than a lot of others uh, when it comes to um, taking off all of the regulatory shackles on the coal industry and on any fossil fuel industries at all. Um, I mean, you talk about you you mentioned climate denial. You probably get no two better examples than that. Um, I you know I think that again in the wake of something like this, it's kind of difficult to you know immediately come out, rush out of the gates and immediately start trying to assign blame for this that and the other um, because it's a very painful and sort of traumatic experience and people are still reeling. But I think that all you have to do is is look at who was hardest hit and and what it did to the more impoverished communities and and see, you know, what is what is uh, coming down the pike for the future. I mean, we talk about like the future being, you know, I think Mike Davis called it a planet of slums, but I, I think that and 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 you look at like um, the flooding in Pakistan right now too. Uh, this is something that is is happening all over, um, whether it's flooding or drought. It seems pretty undeniable at this point. Um, but it's not just it, it. It's an example of how you can't just have a kind of environmental science or liberal approach to this and just say it's it's climate change. I think you also have to look at the material conditions on the ground of what people have had to deal with over decades. I mean, I, I talked to a guy, I remember talking to a guy probably in the, a few days after the flood when he came into the office and uh, I thought it was very interesting. Um, and when I say the office, I mean this mutual aid office we have set up here in Whitesburg. I thought it was very interesting because he, he was telling me, he was like, people are saying that this is because of climate change. And he was like, I don't know, I don't know about that. His mom lost her trailer she basically lost everything. He was like, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know if it's climate change or not. That's, you know, above my pay grade. I don't really know anything about all that. He's like, but I do know that it is because of strip mining. I know it's because they, they, they took out so much of the land here and the people here don't, don't own that land. They don't have access to any of it. A lot of it is still, you know, inaccessible. Um, it's still owned by companies for further industrial development and use in the event that they find further seams of coal or seams of some other mineral that they may need to use or or timber or something like that. Um, and I thought that was an interesting thing. It's like climate change could be abstract for him as it is for all of us. It's very difficult for us to even kind of, even after experiencing something like this, but it's not abstract. It's not difficult to understand that um, there are conditions on the ground that make these things way worse than they need to be. So what happens to a conversation on climate change when class is not a topic of that conversation? What happens when we not only have climate change denialism, but we have class denialism? Can we prepare ourselves? Can we mitigate the worst aspects of climate change and at the same time ignore the impact that class has on that outcome? I, I, yeah, I don't think so. I, I don't think that 
I think that if you have just one without the other, uh, you're going to basically going to have a political campaign or a movement based on basically asking people for their moral support. And I mean, that can work in some cases, I suppose, but generally you have to be able to point out the sort of material um, connections, the things that tie your material fate, your, your, your destiny to that of the planet. And, uh, you know, just asking people to care more about um, the atmosphere or some of these things like that's people have bills to pay. They've got jobs, they got lives. Like they, they don't, they're not necessarily going to have time to take out of their week and plug into some, uh, you know, sort of abstract climate change campaign you know, that you have to be able to prove to them that this is, this is something that affects all of us. And uh, especially the poor and working people of the world. Yeah, and it's a shame that we don't have more uh, climate change activism that is uh, focused on class. I'm not saying that there isn't any whatsoever, but it's too bad that there isn't more. You write, even asking the political question at a time like this is difficult, thorny, it can seem callous. Immediately after the disaster, as you say, the political question can be difficult. I, I think it was back in 2006 in response to the deadly Sago uh, West Virginia coal mine disaster, trapping 13 miners, 12 of whom would die, that The Daily Show's John Stewart uh, echoed a sentiment many had at the time, which was while the miners were still trapped and their survival uncertain, the poor timing of Democratic U.S. House members pointing out the dangers of fossil fuel extraction, not only for the workers, but the planet, they thought that that was very poor timing. Like with the flooding in eastern Kentucky, the political question or point can be difficult and thorny, but how important is it for that question to be asked or that point discussed immediately. What is missed in, say, Eastern Kentucky when the political question of climate change or and class is not asked because it is difficult and thorny immediately after what are so-called natural disasters? What happens when, just out of a sense of being polite, the media doesn't focus on these kinds of other mitigating factors while the disaster is taking place? Well, you wind up ceding ground to people who want to depoliticize it or... I think in an even worse uh, consequence, you wind up ceding ground to the reactionary forces. And in this instance, it's the police. And I mean, you know, the police wasted no time uh, providing political explanations and providing political uh, targets for venting rage and anger. And in this case, it was the looters. And I talked about that in the piece. Um, you know, uh, before the dust had even settled, before a lot of places had even drained and become accessible, they were they were on local media talking about looters, and um, and so yeah, so if you can't get out there and um, immediately try to uh, provide some sort of narrative, um, you know, materialist explanation, um, then other people will. I mean, they're going to do it anyways, but that you've, you've, they've got to be pushed back against. So were there any actual reports of looting? You write about how the police reacted to the potential for looting. Were there any real reports that, that were being done by the media? Was the media either exaggerating or accurately reporting on acts of looting that were taking place? They, they reported on one, and that's, I've heard rumors 
since then, but they've only been able to provide one documented case that I've seen, especially in the early days of that. I mean, I don't deny that it was happening. Sure, I'm sure it happened here and there, but the mechanics of it made absolutely zero sense. Well, first of all, everybody was impacted in some way. I mean, everybody. I mean, everybody was dazed, uh, yeah, traumatized. Um, it would take some really uh, opportunistic, like, you know, on your toes type um, actors to immediately assess the situation and say, all right, let's go loot. Like, it, 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 and, and also, logistically, that just wasn't really possible, though, because, like I said, some places were still inaccessible. And then the, the other dimension is this is of this is like people were saying, well, okay, people are taking things out of the creeks. Well, I mean, who does it even belong to at that point? I mean, we we are starting to see a, a world in which these climate disasters can uh, they present they present a, a new contradiction of capitalism, which is that these climate disasters can destroy the very boundaries of private property, um, and that has to be enforced somehow. And obviously, that's going to be with more militarized police and with the scapegoating of poor people, uh, people who use drugs, things like that. But yeah, no, these these rumors are all over the place. I mean, people are even talking about um, drug users uh, uh, like double dipping and distribution lines, people, um, you know, getting supplies from distribution centers and then coming back around and getting more supplies. And it's like, well, well, what is okay? A, what is wrong with that? Um, yeah, I could see it from a community perspective. Yeah, it's it's maybe wrong to take supplies that other people need, but the name of the game here is individual survival. That is that is the whole point of capitalist social relations. We create individuals who are in competition with other individuals, and that's ostensibly what everyone wants here. And so, if you're going to criticize that, um, I mean, you don't really have a leg to stand on. That Again, that's capitalism, that's capitalist social relations. Now, if it was community survival, if we were all looking out for each other, we have a different set of values, a different mode of production, um, then we could talk about it. But uh, even even to the extent that looting did happen, again, uh, that's and, and I don't think it really did. It probably happened in a few instances, but it was vastly overblown. To the extent that that even did happen, well... Again, like you've created a, a situation in a region where people are incredibly impoverished, and so what? What do you expect? You know, but you've you've attempted at this you've attempted this kind of uh, collectivist response when it comes to providing mutual aid for people, making or being part of uh, working at a makeshift mutual aid office in Whitesburg, Kentucky, for victims of the flooding. Uh, I'm I'm not too sure if you had started this mutual aid uh, office at, from the beginning of COVID-19 during the pandemic or not, but I'm just curious, how much do you think the pandemic has prepared us, has re-educated the uh, population, the public, when it comes to areas like Whitesburg, uh, Kentucky, and uh, having a collective response as opposed to a an individualist response when it comes to a disaster like climate change or a pandemic? Are people changing their minds when it comes to a collectivist as opposed to an individualist response to disaster? Well, um, so yes, it's answer um your first question the 
we we had not set up this uh you know loosely defined organization prior to this uh, this was something that was explicitly response to the flood um but it is important to point out that there are mutual aid is a weird thing because it, it can be it's very loosely defined and it doesn't necessarily even have any kind of political thing attached to it political valence attached to it like you know right wingers can do P, uh, mutual aid uh the centrists can do mutual aid what, i mean basically what the county was the county government was doing could be considered mutual aid like combining resources into then distributing them out um i guess it depends on what your end goal is if it does have a end goal at all if there is a kind of political uh, again sort of valence or anything attached to it i think that where i come from it uh, what what i have seen looking at it is there are limitations to it um, it is very important from a, a community member standpoint and from a sort of uh, you know a leftist standpoint like looking at the future like how are we going to be resilient and how are we going to be able to face to the future but i do feel like the limitations with it do point out the need for uh, i mean for lack of a better word i guess communism some and maybe maybe that's not state communism or something like that but i do mean like you you do need an administrative state that ensures collective property you need uh, an administrative state that is able to um, put up housing free housing for people and ensure that because like as i pointed out in the piece like you can give out uh, money you can give out supplies but none of us have the resources to build housing which is probably the biggest need right now you've got thousands and thousands of displaced people and so you you need the resources the know-how the you know the architectural minds and and the workers to do it to build efficient how free and efficient housing for people uh that's not in floodplains that's not gonna be, and if it is it maybe it's you know retrofitted with all kinds of insane things that could make it resilient to things like that um, but you you need that too. And um, so I think to me that that spells the need for what the future is going to have to look like. Like it can't just be like a, a group of ragtag volunteers, you know, going around and putting out fires. Um, we need to build a larger political um, movement that can demand this and that could potentially even, you know, command eventually the state to be able to respond to things like this, because now there's no response. I mean, there's FEMA, uh, there's a few things here and there, small business administration loans. The National Guard was here for like two weeks, but for the most part, it is people just helping out other people. And it's just not good enough. It's you, you need something else uh, to be able to to help people out. We are speaking with writer and co-host of the podcast, Trillbilly, Trillbilly Workers Party, Terrence Ray, who returns to This Is How to Speak with us live from his hometown of Whitesburg, Kentucky, about his most recent Baffler magazine article, Flooding in the Sacrifice Zone Among the Wreckage in Eastern Kentucky. You can follow Terrence on Twitter at the Trillbillies. You can also find Trillbilly, Trillbilly Workers Party at Patreon at patreon.com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. You write that in a true sign of the times, the Lexington Herald leaders op-ed section tried to discourage 
uh, victim blaming, writing, we can rally to help Eastern Kentucky without worrying about politics. In that uh, uh, Her- uh, Lexington Herald leader op-ed again, it says, we can rally to help Eastern Kentucky without worrying about politics. What does not worrying about politics mean? Is it not considering, say, choices made that may have contributed to or exacerbated the disaster caused by the flooding? Is it about not organizing? What What do they mean about not worrying about politics? Because every time I hear those kinds of phrases, I always think there's something else going on than what they're trying, what they're saying on the surface. Well, it's interesting. In that particular instance, they were responding to uh, this line that gets thrown around around a lot after things like this which is like the people there that are in the direct line of fire for this kind of disaster basically more or less deserved it because they voted for mitch mcconnell and trump and everything else to the extent that if they even did that we don't even know it's just a conjecture that liberals throw out um because that is their political explanation and i and i have to hand it to them it is a political explanation it's a very you know, sort of almost genocidal one, but it's a political explanation. It's not devoid of a political analysis. It's just that that analysis is very bad. Um, but I think that that op-ed like overcorrected too far into the other, uh, you know, side of things, which was basically they were saying like, you know, politics can be divisive right now. Don't don't bring up anything that could be divisive. Um, but I mean, I think again, I think that's an error. I think that yes, people are dazed, but they're coming out of the daze and they're and they're pissed off. They're angry, and so where are you going to divert that rage towards? Um, you know, again, there are people that will take advantage of that, like police. They'll try to get you to di- to divert it towards the looters and to other poor people and to people who use drugs. But um, you know, unless someone is able to say no. You should divert that towards the coal bosses, the ones that got to walk away from this. They got to put down everything five years ago once the price of coal was no longer profitable and walk away from it all. Uh, It's from all the other fossil fuel executives, from, uh, you know, the people at the commanding heights of the economy. Um, These are people who, yes, I I think it's allowable to be divisive towards because they created – they cre- I mean, this is this this had just just by way of like comparison, Hurricane Katrina killed, I think, close to 2000 people. And um, I guess that would make sense that that was an urban area and you've got more people packed in to a smaller uh, urban area. I mean, this killed almost 40 people and they may not sound like a lot until you consider that there's only about 200,000 people in eastern kentucky we're talking about a massive geographic area the size of like a, an entire state i mean that just and something like ten thousand homes were destroyed the magnitude of this is hard to comprehend and and it's why i've kind of joked before that it's kind of underselling it to just call it a flood the flood of 22 i mean it deserves a name like hurricane harvey or something it deserves some sort of name that you can like have a spiritual catharsis with every time you invoke it. You know what I'm saying? 
You write of a, a young couple who came into the mutual aid office who you described as the angriest people you had yet seen since the flooding began, while everyone else seemed to still be in shock. You write, what they were mad about wasn't surprising, but only because I'd heard it so many times before. People, probably in the cities, were saying that we deserved this flood because of the election, as you were mentioning with Donald Trump. But to what extent do you think that's a mistaken belief that people probably in the cities were saying that we deserve this because of the election? How much is that a reality and how much is that a myth? How much do you think that is a good descriptor of the liberal analysis? And how much do you think that's just a made-up myth by those who are on the right? I don't know. It's it's a good question. It's hard to say. I, do, I will say that it is, it is definitely a thing um, that people do say, but it's mostly like online. I think people say that on Twitter a lot and on Facebook and everything. They say, you know, this is what you get for voting for so-and-so. Um, but I do find that to be, a, even if it is just something that people say online, I do find it to be a genuine expression of probably how a lot of people in the Democratic Party do think. It does feel like politics at this point is just um, a way to enact uh, the poli- the worst policies on the people that you hate the most. I mean, there is, again, there's no class analysis. There's barely even a race analysis. Um, and so it becomes just a, a sort of cathartic ritual to be able to look at the misfortune of others and say, ah, it's because of who they voted for and the beliefs that they have. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that that is something that does get thrown around. I do think it's kind of the unspoken thing among a lot of Democrats. But I mean, it, it, again, even if Joe Biden is not going to come out and say that, which he won't. I mean, again, I don't think any of the top people at the top of the Democratic Party will explicitly say that. I think their actions pretty much uh, back it up. I mean, again, the fact that, again, maybe I've said this multiple times, maybe I was naive, but I really did think that after something like this, you'd have boots on the ground, you'd have like FEMA in, you know, like artillery. You heard the conspiracy theory about FEMA camps for years. I was like, okay, maybe there's a military aspect to them. They come on the ground, they help people clean out, they set up housing and whatnot. But no, it what happens is they send bureaucrats in who make you do paperwork. They give you a set amount of money that you can spend on X, Y, and Z. You can't use it however you need to. You have to use it however they see fit. Um, I'm not going to say that that's bad because people do need help in any way they can get it but the response has not been robust by any means and again and i've had to point this out many times too the fact that like a group of just ragtag volunteers are going around and not just us but also church groups nonprofit groups people are just having to go around and clean out other people's houses and do duct work for them uh tear out sheetrock gutting work and everything else that's insane. That is absolutely insane to me that there's no federal response that would help people in events like this, that the best they can do is send in bureaucrats with clipboards. Um, I, I don't know. It's once again, I, I admit that I was naive and probably thinking it would be differently, but I did think it would be different. And no long-term response either, as we have seen with what took place with Katrina in 2004, if you go to New Orleans today, it is still not rebuilt. 
from Katrina. Oh, yeah. It's still suffering from Katrina. But yet, as you know, in the news media, in the corporate establishment news media, the, the way that any one of these disasters is covered is, look at the human toll of this disaster. It's kind of like a disaster porn for a couple of days. And uh-huh. then the story usually goes for maybe three or four. And then it's about the community's resilience and how they helped out each other. And then there's never a return to that community to see how they are surviving since that disaster happened. So how much do you think the the way in which the media portrays these situations leads to a lack of a long-term response? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, Obviously the the 24 hour news cycle is by its very nature designed to ensure that there isn't any kind of long-term accountability or watchdogging held over a lot of these disasters. Um, but I think a lot of the media obviously just doesn't even have a class analysis. I mean, that's just obvious. And so you're exactly right, Chuck. They just go and they, they tell some stories here and there about resilience and, um, rebuilding and moving on. And then they themselves move on, but it is, it is just a continuation of how they've always reported on places like this. Um, you know, you hear a lot about people parachuting in and uh, taking a few details here and there and then leaving and then using it to write a story about, you know, uh, people, for example, I remember Nick Kristoff doing this at the New York Times a few years ago, uh, interviewing three or four people who were on SSI benefits and then using that as an as a way to say that the entire region was filled with people who were abusing Social Security benefits and disability benefits. And so that that is a thing that happens. Um, and then they also do that with the election around Trump, too. Um, obviously, it all lacks nuance, but what it mostly lacks is a class analysis, um, a, a sense of solidarity with the people impacted by the decades of industrial activity here uh, and, you know, capitalist uh, development, exploitation. And um, and so, yeah, so, again, you're not going to get that from any of these bigger uh, outlets. And you're right, in the absence of meaningful state intervention, we have seen citizens springing to action to help each other out, providing direct aid in the form of supplies, money, and labor. But even aspects of this mobilization can feel of the minute and hopeless. How do you sit staring at pallets of bottled water as far as the eye can see while also ruminating on the thousands of gallons of oil that reportedly washed down the troublesome creek in Hindman after the floodwaters busted a gas station tank? A friend and I joked that it was briefly the most expensive stream in all of Kentucky. I guess all you can do sometimes is laugh. What does that gas station spill mean for the immediate environment of the people of Hinman? Well, it's crazy because the ecological devastation and toll is something that isn't really, uh, I mean, obviously it's discussed in sort of abstract terms and in the pictures you see of houses and the creeks and everything else. But there is a whole other aspect of this, which is that on a lot of these mountaintops, you've got uh, coal slurry ponds, basically impoundments where they put coal slurry waste uh, from tipples or other, or the extraction process itself. And um, and that's all still there, and it's going to be there for years and years and years. And so you would assume that when you've got as much rain that fell in a storm like the one that just fell, a lot of that material is probably going to wind up in the creek. 
And then you've got uh, just the industrial um, solvents and chemicals in people's garages and homes, fertilizer, batteries, paint, um, oil, gasoline, stuff like that. That's all going to, I mean, in my garage, our garage got flooded, gasoline spilled, you know, it winds up in the creek. All this eventually, and, and then eventually, uh, obviously, you've got the gas station that I mentioned in Heinemann, where the the concrete above it buckled, the gas tank, the 30,000-gallon gas tank spilled into the creek. And so, you know, there was a, a few days there where you were driving around directly after the flood where you could smell gasoline very strongly in a lot of places. And um, and that all winds up somewhere. Um we're in the headwaters of the Kentucky River. Uh, a lot of that water goes downstream, and they use it for bourbon. They use it to, uh, you know, you've got these limestone palisades in central Kentucky, and, they, and that's why there's a bourbon industry there. Then that water goes into the Ohio, and then the Ohio River drains into the Mississippi. And then, you know, all that drains into the Gulf. And so it's, you know, you, you just th see things like that. And it's no wonder that there's a dead zone in the Gulf. I mean, this is all connected. We're all connected by watersheds. And, uh, and again, like you, you, uh, it's hard not to sort of get lost in those sort of details. Um, because, you know, they're all around, uh, they're all around you. And, uh, and again, um, the, the ecological toll of this is is very distressing. Um, I, you know, I can, for better or worse, do consider myself an environmentalist in the sense that it does distress me what we are doing to the environment. And, uh, and that, and that kind of stuff is just the added, you know, cherry on top of the sort of human toll and, and social disruption that this has caused. So you also point out that the poor and working people of this part of Kentucky also live in uh, social environments that are heavily policed. Many are addicted to substances that were forced upon them by pharmaceutical companies at a moment of extreme regional crisis, as we've discussed with you here on the show in the past, the organized abandonment of the coal industry. How much do you hear a longing for a return of coal animosity towards those who want clean energy and ending dependence on fossil fuel? Do you hear a lot of people who believe that they still can go backwards into the past and have a uh, great America again? You know, 10 years ago, yeah, you would have heard that a lot, even as recently as five years ago, but now not really. It's it's set in at this point that this is the new way of doing things. And um, it's it's interesting. I'm, I'm reading a book right now by Gabriel Why Not, who uh, I don't know if you've had him on the show before. He's there in Chicago. Um, he wrote a book called The Next Shift about the rise of the healthcare industry in the Rust Belt in Pittsburgh. And um, and it's very fascinating because what he describes in that book is almost a one-to-one -one what happened in my community. Um, there is no coal anymore, not really. Uh, there are a few operations here and there, but at any given moment, I think there's like 30 or 40 coal miners in my, my county. Um, the industry now in this county is healthcare. And in all the surrounding counties, it's all healthcare. You've got these massive, uh, you know, health corporations, Appalachian Regional Care, Pikeville Medical. Uh, you know, th these these are the biggest employers now in this area, and that is the uh, 
that is the main industrial sort of output here. And so um, you, you won't really hear, uh, you know, calls for a return to that. But that when you did hear that, at the time, obviously, it was very distressing. But once Trump started running for office, and you know, you got the Make America Great Again thing, it was very obvious how the, that friends of coal, war on coal rhetoric of 10, 20 years ago was uh, being deployed towards a, a conservative project. And that was uniting coal miners and coal bosses against uh, other poor and working people here in this region. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's kind of the, um, been the MO, I guess. That's what I guess what, that's what the conservative movement has been trying to do for, uh, a while now. It doesn't always work at all times in all places, but here it did work for a brief time. And, you know, you had mentioned the paragraph about, um, the people here being policed heavily Part of that is because of, of that war on coal, friends of coal campaign. Um, it created a social environment of high paranoia, distrust of your neighbor. And again, this happened at a time of the organized abandonment, abandonment of the industry. And um, so now, so now we have, you know, a new Eastern Kentucky. Um, it has all the baggage of all of those reactionary paranoid politics of, uh, you know, are you a friend of coal or not? Are you for or against the drug users? Um, it has all of that, but now it doesn't have any of the, uh, of the, uh, sort of financial base that coal mining once had in terms of property values and severance taxes in going into local coffers but it has these high employment, low profit industries like healthcare combined with um, jail expansions and heavy policing. And so that's the new, again, that's the new Eastern Kentucky we live in. Um, the old one was uh, bad for all the other reasons, um, but now it has created a, a sort of ecological environment that is going to make you a sitting duck in natural disasters like this. And so I don't know. It's it's just like all social formations. It is a process, a dialectical process that is happening every day. But it's um, it. I think it speaks to what we were talking about earlier about the need to be able to, you know, sp speak about the the political dimensions of this as soon as they happen and not cede any ground to the you know the reactionary forces after they do happen. And that leads me to uh, my final question for you, Terrence. We have been speaking with writer and co-host of the podcast, Trillbilly Workers Party, Terrence Ray, who has returned to This Is Hell to talk about his most recent Baffler Magazine article, Flooding in the Sacrifice Zone Among the Wreckage in Eastern Kentucky. Thanks to the listener, Calvin Graham, for suggesting Terrence return as a guest here on This Is Hell. Thank you, Calvin. Follow Terrence on Twitter at the Trillbillies, and you can also find Trillbilly Workers Party at on Patreon at patreon.com slash Party. One last question for you, Terrence, and as we always do with our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. I had a completely different one written before we started this interview, but we touched on something earlier on that I think is really important. I want to get back to it real quick. So can 
climate change activism embrace a class analysis or would that be seen as anti-worker? This is the big thing that the right tries to do. It tries to pit environmentalists, those who are trying to fight against uh, making climate change, exacerbating climate change, making it even worse, uh, against those who are in labor, trying to divide and conquer the left, if you will. Can Is it possible to have, to, uh, have climate change activism that does embrace a class analysis, or would that automatically turn that into an anti-worker discussion? Um, I think it's possible, absolutely. Um, it's difficult, going to be very difficult. But just, I mean, just like, uh, you know, racism or, uh, you know, ant- or, 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 or bigotry or any, you know, anti-queer, anti-trans, um, bigotry, anything like that, um, that is going to uh, that is going to create create a um, a worker and a working class that is riven with divisions. It's going to make it weaker when it stands up to uh, you know capitalists, the you know people at the commanding heights of the economy. And it's the same with um, you know anti ecological, anti environmental ideas. It's not in anyone's interest to actually want to target someone because of their race. It's not in anyone's interest to want to target someone because of their identity, sexual identity, or, or and it's not in anybody's interest to want to target someone uh, because they have, you know, certain values around preserving the environment. It, it, is, it is actually harmful to the working class to, to tear down the environment around us. And, uh, you know, I... I I don't obviously have the answers on how you you do that. You scale that up to a movement wide thing, but theoretically and conceptually, yes, it's possible um, because we know it to be true. It is just demonstrably true that it's not in the working class's interest to want to uh, destroy the environment <laughs> for the sake of profit, and uh, and if we could somehow harness that truth and make it more demonstrably true and make it more, uh, you know, ha- make it have more valence within people, then I think that it, there is hope there. But yeah, I, I don't think it's, I've not consigned myself to thinking that it's impossible. Terrence, thank you so much for being back on our show. This is your third appearance on the show, once in 2019, once in 2021. And today, people can find our past interviews with Terrence at our website, thisishell.com. And you mentioned uh, Gabriel Winant in his book, uh, The Next Shift. We did interview uh, Gabriel last year. He was actually the academic advisor for one of our producers. So that's how we got that interview. <laughs> so, nice. t- so Terrence, thank you so much for being back on the show. The best of luck to all of you over at the Trillbilly Workers Party. Again, you can find them on Patreon at patreon.com slash Party, And you can follow Terrence on Twitter at the Trillbillies. Thank you so much for being back on our show. You know I'm going to be bugging you in the future to have you back on. <laughs> Thank you again, Chuck. Thank you so much. All right. You take take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. Seriously, you prove us wrong, we'll send you a T-shirt. If what you just heard from Terrence Ray and his eyewitness account of the deadly flooding in eastern Kentucky that began a little over a month ago today, if that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief, 
or made you realize that yes, this is hell, please become a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. You can also show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On last week's Patreon podcast, we had another unintentionally uncomfortable discussion with producer Sebastian Vopper on what he can and cannot be doing legally during his week off from the show while touring northern Michigan, including a visit to that hellhole that is Mackinac Island. That is, I assume it's a hellhole. I've never been there, but I, I, I can only assume based on the island economy's dependence solely on non-union seasonal labor and fudge production, as far as I know, with a transportation infrastructure that refuses to move beyond the horse and buggy stage, I can only assume that Mackinac Island is some sort of authoritarian, totalitarian autocracy. But, but our discussion with Sebastian on his trip to God's Little Mitten revealed a lot about what it means to be an immigrant in the United States when you're trying to become a citizen. We also thanked everyone who dropped by during office hours last week. I'll have a little bit more to say about that in a moment. Or uh, everyone I could remember dropping by office hours last week as I was drinking on an empty stomach, which was a really bad idea. And we had another installment of what is quickly becoming a regular segment during the Patreon podcast, This Week in Hell, my own personal, at times embarrassing, and at other times personally revelatory analysis of that week's show when I share what the previous week's show meant to me what I got out of our interviews with guests on the most recent Patreon podcast it was a summary of how I was personally affected by our conversations with sociologist Laura Malden who was on to talk about her article at the Baffler also at the Baffler like uh, Terrence's was Uh, Her article is called Care Tactics, Hacking an Ableist World. Historian Penny M. Von Eschen was also on last week to talk about her new book, Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War Triumphalism, and Global Disorder Since 1989. And economist Dean Baker joined us as well, co-founder of the Center for Economic Policy and Research, who explained how the uh, mainstream establishment corporate media get the economy wrong over and over again, which means political leaders then follow that narrative and get it wrong as well, which means most of the voting public gets it wrong too. As is seemingly always the case with This Week in Hell, I had no idea what the week meant to me until I was writing This Week in Hell. Two weeks ago, I had no idea that conversations about the viral underclass with Stephen Thrasher, the economy and racism with CEPR's Algernon Austin, and sex workers and labor rights with Dr. Heather Berg, Those talks were, to me, all about, apparently, revealing inequality and how the fight over equality has been raging in the United States since before the states were united and continues to this day with white supremacists doing everything they can to maintain a Confederate antebellum structural unfairness. Here on This Is How we do not schedule guests on some sort of theme basis for that week's shows, yet when I step back and consider what happened during This Week in Hell, I seem to always see bigger patterns. For instance, in the most recent Patreon podcast, when talking uh, disability with Laura Malden, uh, the blown opportunity of world peace or for world peace following the Cold War with Penny M. Von Eschen and the horrible media reporting on the allegedly terrible news about the economy with Dean Baker, I found a connection between all of them and 
performing a public service, doing something for the greater community that may not personally benefit whoever is taking the action, but it will hopefully contribute to the betterment of everybody's lives. I know it's a weird thing to unearth during a re-examination of last week's show, but it's what I got out of the show during This Week in Hell, and the only way you can hear me connecting those dots is by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also on Patreon, <coughs> excuse me, my cough button isn't working apparently. Let me try that again. Also on Patreon, we were wondering what we were up to 15 years ago here on This Is Hell. So I looked into our archives and found uh, on August 25th, 2007, among our guests was a Stephen I. Vladek the then associate professor of law at the University of Miami, who served as executive editor of the Yale Law Journal and was student director of the Balancing Civil Liberties and National Security Post-9-11 Litigation Project. Stephen participated in litigation challenging President George W. Bush's assertion of power after 9-11 to detain individuals without that, uh, without trial. Uh, Stephen was also part of the legal team that successfully challenged the Bush administration's use of military tribunals at Guantanamo Bay. In other words, he was one of the nation's leading lawyers fighting against the legality of the Bush administration's war on terror in its earliest days when such a fight was seen as un-American, unpatriotic, and supportive of those who commit deadly terrorism. Stephen had just written the Los Angeles Times opinion piece, The Lost Padilla Verdict. Jose Padilla is the Chicagoan who at the time had just been found guilty by a federal jury on charges of conspiring to commit murder and fund terrorism in the wake of 9-11. Government officials had earlier claimed Padilla was suspected of planning to build and explode a dirty bomb in the United States, but he was never charged with anything relating to it, related to a dirty bomb, despite the media reporting on it for days and law enforcement officials and political re uh, leaders repeating that claim over and over and over again. Padilla's lawsuits against the military for allegedly torturing him were rejected by the courts for lack of merit and jurisdictional issues. At the time, there were also concerns about Padilla's mental health long before being a, labeled a terrorist, a suspected terrorist, a suspected dirty bomber by law enforcement politicians and their stenographers in the fear-mongering media. But you can only hear all of that as well as get access to over 200 past Patreon episodes, each featuring a new monologue by me and a classic interview from our archives that is not available anywhere else online, and exclusive access to a secret special code word that gets you a $5 discount on all of our This Is Hell merchandise by, subscri by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live Thursdays and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com. Slash this is hell. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listeners and tell us how they are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? Sloan L answers, Sir Yadi McYadi the third. What? What? I guess that's like a weird... All right, we'll have to do a little bit of research on that one. All right. Mark A answers Elon Theo Third. <laughs> do, you, do you sense a pattern yes, I evolving? Yes, I'm starting to figure this out now. Braden S answers, I took over Jeffrey's business. Yes, that Jeffrey. Here's my card. 
<laughs> so I assume it's Jeff Bezos and not Jeffrey Dorchin, because <laughs> Jeffrey Dorchin's business is not going well. <laughs> what dazzling persona, persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? <laughs> Aaron B. answers Elon scur- Scum. Skirm. Scum. Scum. <laughs> All right, whatever. Krimsky K- Crackers. Uh, Musk backwards. I see. Elon Scum. Yeah, there, oh, it. there you go. Your brain is working well. Look at that. Look at that. Krimsky Crackers answers British peerage salesmen. The great part is it's not illegal. They do it all the time. So peerage is like the uh, giving of titles. Yes. Like duchess and (laughs) baroness or whatever. It's quite an industry. (laughs) Fabio L. answers, I'd rather not be surrounded by a-holes and psychos. Thanks. (laughs) All right. Pete R.P.D. answers, Thurston Howe. The third. <laughs> I always wondered about the second and the first. We never got the whole history of that family. You have to get to the third to be uh, <laughs> to be really rich. Yes. Uh, so anyway, I don't know if you looked at this one. Rich H put a GIF okay. GIF up of some weird actor dude. Oh, I can't even remember who his name is because it's so lame. But <laughs> you'll have to take a look at it. All right. So there's a GIF that we should all go check at facebook.com slash this is already. We should not look at it. Right, what so dazzling perso- persona are you making up <laughs> to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and I powerful? Fe- I have a feeling you weren't crazy about that last answer to the question from Al. Kevin O. answers Vladimir Billy Bob Romanov. <laughs> All right. Romanov. Romanov. I like that. He Vladimir the, Billy uh, Bob Romanov. He's a failed banker of some Lithuanian. Yeah. He's a failed Russian banker from some Lithuanian bank. Nice. Uh, Benjamin C. answers Captain Prolactin. <laughs> okay. Which is a captain of milk production, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice. Ray O. answers Grim Death. <laughs> it's a nice persona to be taking nowadays. What dazzling persona are you making up to gain illicit access to the circles of the rich and powerful? We have a couple more. Okay. Pete, Peter K. answers Artie the Steel. Okay. Do you get it? Yeah. Art of the, the Steel. Steel. Oh, yeah. S L S. I thought it was a reference to Dutch artists, but I guess not. Go ahead. S L S answers usurper of Prince Lika, pretender of the throne of Albania. Okay, that's a good one. And our last one for today is Wojciak answers John Barron. John Barron, where Which do I know that? It was a nom de plume of Trump. When oh, he that's right. Radio shows. That's right. He would call up radio shows under another name, John Barron. That's right. That's a good one, though. So email your answers to this week's question from hell to chuck at this is hell.com. Post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell. DM them to us via Twitter at this is hell radio. Uh, and the person with our favorite uh, answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support. I do Remember, have a couple dazzling persona. Yes, dazzling, dazzling is the key word. Dazzling persona. Focus on the dazzling part. I do have a couple of emails for you, but I'm going to save those for later this week. One about uh, this is hell office hours, which we began this week uh, at uh, on Wednesday, August 24th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. 
Avenue. It's our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think. This is Hell Office Hours. And I got a story to share with you about <laughs> our first official This is Hell Office Hours since the beginning of the pandemic uh, because it was quite a story. So tune in for that later this week. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Richard, who are our upcoming guests this week here on This Is Hell? We have a uh, writer, author, and former academic. Uh, what, Chuck? Once you're an academic, aren't you always an academic? Exactly, right? It's like being an alcoholic, right? It's the same thing. You can't get that stuff out of your system. Apparently. William Dershowitz. Look at that. Returns to This Is Hell to talk about his essay, Why I Left Academia, Since You're Wondering, which appears in his collection, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. William was on This Is Hell back in August, 2015 to discuss his Harper's article, The Neoliberal Arts, How College Sold Its Soul to the Market. He is the recipient of a National Book Critics Circle Award for Excellence in Reviewing and is the New York Times bestselling author of Excellent Sheep, The Death of the Artist, a sobering account of what is of what it's like to be any kind of artist in America today. We don't know who our final guest is going to be on this week's show. We have been talking with somebody for several weeks who contacted us, a past guest who contacted us and said that they wanted to be on the show. We replied to them, tried to schedule them for this Wednesday. We still haven't heard back yet, but we will be announcing our final guest of the week later on this week's show. And uh, real quick about William Dereshevitz, who's going to be on the show, uh, Dereshevitz, who's going to be on the show uh, uh, tomorrow or later on this week, our next guest on the show, I should say. Uh, Bill was on the show on not only just in 2015, but on August 29th, 2015. I had no idea that was the date he was on until I was doing uh, research for our upcoming interview. And so that is six, seven years ago to the day today that he was on the show, completely randomly scheduled seven years ago to the day today was the last time Bill was on the show. It's a weird thing. And, of course, we all also have a rotten history from Ronaldo Magaldi and a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Truly appreciate it, sir. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.